You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. I'm Ken, Certified Financial Planner, and your host for the show today at least, and hopefully indefinitely into the future. <laughs> I have Ethan Broga here. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. How's it going on? It's going pretty good today. Excellent. You feeling, you feeling better? I feel tired earlier. Yeah, you know, after I had a pre-lunch little, uh, I don't know, yeah. lull. I feel better now. I had a. She had some good sushi. You're back on track. Yeah, it was del- delicious. Excellent. Well, this show is designed to share with you, uh, not lunch tips or energy tips, but uh, <laughs> financial tips. How to make a lifetime of prudent financial decisions is one of our objectives, among others. And uh, we do that by sharing information about investments and financial planning techniques of which are many, many years of experience and the best research we can find out in the marketplace uh, support. If you want to get a hold of us, I'd like Ethan here to uh, go ahead and give you our contact information. And when we get done with that, I was hoping today on the show we could continue uh, some discussion that we had last week with with uh, notable author Larry Swedrow about investment mistakes that, that uh, we as individual investors frequently make and some some questions that we've gotten recently um, from listeners that we could talk about some of those ideas that relate to this also the facebook ipo seems to be big 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 news there's a buzz around a guy like you who's on facebook uh 24 7 well i'm a 24 7 but and uh if you want to be ethan's friend i'm sure he's there we also have an empirical facebook site a page so keep that in mind but go ahead ethan give out our our contact information. <laughs> All right, we'll do. Um, if you'd like to reach us during the show, as usual, we'll be happy to send. Um, you know, gee, the first three callers, I'd be happy to send a, uh, a fresh new book. In fact, um, we secured some signed books from Larry Swedrow after our interview last week. So um, perhaps one of those. I'm not so sure, but perhaps it's possible. So perhaps. if you want to call, ask us a question, uh, financial related question, whether it be uh, on investments or planning, uh, email or phone call. We would love to hear from you, and we can be reached at 866-472-5790 or, of course, at the uh, empirical email at contact at empiradio.com. And uh, you know, if you're an individual investor out there looking for some, not just ask a question, but looking for some, you know, perhaps a second opinion on your own portfolio uh, or perhaps you're getting ready to retire and like to see where you stand, we would love to hear from you as well, and we can do a one-on-one consultation and, of course, the first we can go to get together initially. Um, and we can directly here at the Seattle headquarters at 206-923-3474. And feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan, and we'll be happy to speak with you. Sounds good. Yeah. Is that it? I think so. All right. Well, yeah, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you on the show here and get some questions. So, um one quick thing I just thought of I wanted to bring to your attention, Ethan. All right. Um, I was reading uh, one of the advisor periodicals that I get, and they said that uh, company Merrill Lynch was fined one million smackaroons 
for uh, Merrill Lynch was fined. Yeah, they were fined. I can't believe it for bonus clawbacks. And I, you know, we've said this in the past on the show about um, how we, how I find it odd. How's the, how's the beverage? It's tasty. Mm. How I find it odd that uh, a lot of the the big brokerage firms, and while they've lost over the years market share to independent advisors like ourselves, I find it interesting that they get sued and fined time after time. And we were saying, well, how do why do people continue to work with them when they 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 do things in a lot of cases that are a little bit underhanded, you know, and. Um, how how people still continue to choose to house their money there, and the only reasonable conclusion I, I can come to is that the the advisors that are on the ground level working with the clients are good people. You know that sure. that they're not necessarily um, out to do bad things. That they just happen to be a, at a company where and profit I- tends to come targeted profit comes first, and sometimes paying fines is a part of going after that. It's well worth it in some cases. For these companies, particularly if they don't have a strong moral or ethic, um, it must be grounding there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we were looking at some of their some of the current. Um, we're in the process of just redoing our website, you know. And I was looking at some of the major wirehouse firms just to kind of see well, what are they currently doing on the website. And if you read the stuff, I mean, you would think these guys are running some kind of a nunnery or something. I mean, they're Mother Teresa's out there doing. You know, entire segments and sections of how they give back to the community and do all these great things, and the clients always come first. But then you look at the long list of 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 uh, suits and and penalties and um, things that we could go through for each of these, and you say, well, the website doesn't match at all <laughs> what actually has happened. You know what I mean? I do. There, know what you mean. And I think there should be some verifiability of, hey, it's great that you say. That clients come first, you know, and it's all about the client's dreams and all this kind of stuff. But let's let's actually look into this a little further and see how your track record matches up to that. And it would only take a few quick questions, you know. Has this company ever been fined for for um, taking advantage of investors or not fully disclosing fees or compensation? Um, or making investments that maybe weren't appropriate given a client's circumstances. Or maybe they didn't even assess the client's circumstances in some cases. Or maybe they knew that the investments being peddled weren't great investments, but they were still giving them high ratings because they happened to be in the inventory of the company. Or the company was trying to get banking business. You know, mm-hmm. and There's a whole long list of this stuff that never ceases to amaze me. Um, yeah, I don't. Maybe they were offering special deals to large hedge fund managers who were trading in after-hours mutual. I don't know. But this stuff comes out all the time, and it just kind of confuses me sometimes how um, the marketing and the facade that gets put out on some of this stuff apparently overwhelms the reality of what's really going on. In this case, they were fined a million dollars for bonus clawbacks, and the big bonuses that Merrill Lynch doled out um, during the height of the financial crisis. Um, I'm just going to read this article. I just found it here, Investment Banking Legal and Regulatory by Ben Protest. Merrill Lynch agreed on Wednesday to pay regulators $1 million to settle accusations that it thwarted rules for clawing back the compensation. The bonuses were tied to the firm's merger with Bank of America, which came in early 2009, right. to save the company, right? Mm-hmm. The Financial Industry Regulator Authority, Wall Street self-regulator, sanctioned the firm for requiring formally 
highly paid brokers to settle disputes over retention bonuses. In New York State Court, under the authority rules, brokerage firms are supposed to allow employees access to arbitration panels rather than state courts, which are less friendly turf for employees. Merrill Lynch specifically designed this bonus program to bypass the authority's rule requiring firms to arbitrate disputes with employees and purposely filled, filed, I'm sorry, uh, expedited collection actions in New York state courts and denied those registered representatives a form to assert counterclaims. Bonuses awarded at Merrill ahead of the Bank of America deal have been subject have been the subject of much regulatory scrutiny. In 2010, Bank of America paid the SEC $150 million to settle accusations that it hid bonuses from shareholders before the deal closed. So there's a couple of things I want to explain here. Well, what's going on? Because if you just read the article, it might not be completely clear. One is why were they paying these bonuses? Well, brokerage companies do this kind of stuff all the time. They constantly are swapping brokers. One brokerage company will go after a broker at a different company brokerage company, and they will offer them huge bonuses to move their client base over. The potential problem with that is if the clients aren't made aware of exactly why they're being asked to move when the broker decides to move from one to another, that broker may get an entire year's worth of compensation all in one lump sum check for moving their clients, and it may be three or four years or more the check size could be. Um, and what Merrill wants in return for that, in this case, what they wanted was, well, you're you're going to keep those clients here long enough for us to get that money back. You know, we're paying you in advance, but they're doing it. And so if a broker leaves after getting that bo- bonus and goes somewhere else, maybe they decided that, that Merrill wasn't the place they wanted to be or whatever, the way that Merrill was writing up these contracts, e- Ethan, was that then we can come back and they call it claw back and say, well, any unearned revenue then you need to pay us back, right? But the brokers may have their own case as to why they don't want to do that or why that's not fair. And in this case where the, the FINRA situation was going on is they specifically tried to write around the rules to avoid an arbitration, um, which is, tends to be more cheap a cheaper process and more individual friendly, right? If you're not the large institution with billions of dollars to, to hire attorneys and go through a court process, arbitration is a much uh, more friendly place for people to work out and get resolutions to problems than pushing it through the court system. So it wasn't by accident, right? Merrill was very specific in what they were trying to do with this situation, um, which was to get these brokers out of that and to put them through a very expensive court process um, in a way of getting them to pay back, right? Right, which the Merrill had the advantage in that situation. The real issue or the concern I have is what happens to the clients as they're being jockeyed around from brokerage company <laughs> to brokerage company. What would be your explanation typically um, for to a client of why you would move them if you were a Merrill broker and you want to move to a different brokerage company? Are you going to say it's because I'm getting a huge bonus? Probably not. What would what what do you think they're I'm not even they're, sure. They're, well, probably saying, Hey, I can I can do better over here. I can have access to better investments, more options, something of that nature, I would think. Better research maybe. And I think it should be it should be 
it should be mandatory that it's disclosed, and I think that's part of what this whole discussion is going to lead to as well, that if a broker is trying to move, is suggesting that you move and disrupt, because what may happen is there might be some proprietary stuff that's got to be sold and 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 purchased at a new firm, right, which regenerates a whole new series of transactions or costs. Um, there could be a whole lot of things going on other than this is great for you, Mr. Client, and the client not knowing that it's all about these bonuses. Hey, every five years, because um, I know because we've talked to some potential advisors that are in the, currently in the brokerage world, and it's, hey, you know, every so many years I can take my clients and move to a different place or whatever, and I wind up getting this huge bonus, and we don't do that here, Ethan. We're right. not paying people bonuses and all kinds of stuff to shift money around. Um, so I, I think it needs to be disclosed. If you're out there and you're working with somebody that's a broker and you have a significant amount of your funds there, um, I'd start paying attention to some of the some of the things that these guys are getting fined for, and then asking, hey, is it are they are they out to protect themselves or are some of these things um, potentially putting me as a client at a disadvantage? And I would think um, brokers being paid bonuses to keep get them to keep stay up. You know, at the time of this transaction, being paid large bonuses to keep their clients there. Um, but the, uh, I'm uh, going to assume the, pre- the presumption that, hey, we're going to make some money on these clients. You know, we're not just paying you a bonus for unprofitable yeah, clients. Of course. And in that world, where does the profit come from? Yeah, well, it's from, from the clients. Doing what? Usually products, right? Slowly earning it over years and years. <laughs> or, Pretty expensive stuff. Yeah, usually it's expensive stuff. A lot of times it could be front load stuff. It could be any type of sales products. Here. It could be a whole variety that are organized by comp, by the revenue that they generate. Right. How do we work differently than all that? How does a typical investment advisor that like a Pericle work that's different than that process? Why are we not constantly getting drug into these kinds of things? <laughs> well, we don't sell products for one thing. Uh, the only way we're compensated is uh, the fee that our clients pay us directly. Uh, we're free to use, um, in, in that environment, free to use any of the investments out there in the universe that we think are the best fit for the clients. And typically that means they're, they're extremely low cost because we know things that cost more tend not to be as good for clients. Um, so that's one of the one of the things that we look at. Okay. Well, um, these bonuses, uh, what did I say here? Bank of America paid the 150. We got a minute here. Are we out of time? So what's going on? One minute. Okay, uh, 150 million bucks that Bank of America paid. That's no small um, <laughs> holy mackerel amount. Now, I, I believe Bank of America was one of the banks that did take some 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 money, didn't they? And then they quickly tried to pay it off, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a little bit of why are we paying all these huge bonuses while we're taking bailout money, right? But oh well, I took the entire segment on Seatham. Sorry, bro. No, I like it. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. We'll get back to uh, uh, the Facebook discussion. Should you be buying the IPO when it hits the market? Is that something you should be buying? And uh, and I want to talk about some investment mistakes as well. So we'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management 
inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host, Ethan Broga, alongside uh, Ken Smith. Again, if you'd like to participate in today's discussion, feel free to give us a call. You can reach us at 866-472-5790 or uh, via email at contact at empiradio.com. And, Ken, before the break, we were just finishing up a discussion about uh, the most recent Merrill Lynch fine. Um, There's been a series of those over the many decades. And, you know, I think we're both still a little bit... At least I am confused as to why a company like that, who, who seems to breach trust quite a bit, is still apparently thriving and still in business. Well, I don't know if they're thriving. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's too strong a word. And again, I do believe that the trends are clear in terms of yeah. where the, you know, we are on the. I believe we're, we've been on the right side of the, where the invest, where the financial guidance business has been tracking over the years, and will continue to progress to. Yeah, which right. makes a lot of sense to me, but there is a lot of market confusion, and these firms have been ingrained for years. I mean, hundred, some of them hundred year old plus right. institutions, and it's right. it's really ingrained in as a part of their corporate culture. I think a lot of this is they companies out there look at, um, hey, if we can get away with it, then it's. It's a it's a good thing. It's okay to do, you know. And in our view, I I feel like as being an advisor who who really wants to work with individuals and help them um, with their goals and when, the way we try to design. And we know other firms like Larry's firm that we you know had on last week mm-hmm. have really said, hey, you know, let's build something new and let's try to focus on really putting the client, not just putting a bunch of stuff on our website about how great and nice we are. But behind the scenes, we're constantly embroiled. I mean, the other headline under this article is Maryland Credit Suisse fined for subprime deals. 
Um, we haven't even talked about the kind of stuff that, that these banks are getting in trouble for and uh, and things that are still coming out from the financial crisis right. and those funky mortgage packages that were going on. But uh, the concluding thing on this was the FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, also accused Merrill of drafting the bonus program in a way that obscured that the bonuses came from the firm. Instead, Merrill Lynch structured it to seem that the bonuses stemmed from MLIFI, which is an affiliate not under the authority's jurisdiction. So, I mean, they've got a legal team, right, in these companies, and they know what they're doing. It's not as if they thought, hey, we were just trying to have an innocent bonus program. When you're running it through a system that it's pretty clear was getting around the regulatory component of this. Right. Which would have been, hey, we got to go through an arbitration process if there's a disagreement. Um, that's to the degree that they're planning around this stuff. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And then I wonder, we talked about it during the break briefly, just that, you know, these are the things we hear about, right? These are the things that are in the news that they actually got caught doing. How many things, how many things have been going on behind the scenes that maybe we, the authorities don't know about? You know, I don't know. It's something that's, well, troubling for sure. Like I said, I think it's 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 really indicative of what the culture is, right? right. Whether they're right or wrong, if you follow the dots, right, and you say this is stuff that these guys, yeah, it's like when a criminal, and I'm not, I don't want to get in trouble here. I'm not saying that any of the brokerage firms are criminals or any of that. That's not my job. But what I'm saying, I, my example or analogy here, Ethan, is the first time you catch somebody who's engaged in a criminal activity, or and then he says, "This is the first time I've ever done this." I got to approach that with a little bit of skepticism, you know, particularly if it's a very high-level crime or something. That's very, you got to believe, hey, there's something, uh, some series of stuff that's a, it's 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 a uh, a mindset that goes on. Um, that regardless of what you read in the marketing materials, is not the track record. And I guess if I was if I was giving advice to you who our listeners who looking for help with their investments, I wouldn't always just listen to what they say or what it looks like in the marketing or how much they donate to charity because that could be a drop in the bucket compared to how much that they're taking advantage of people for, right? Um, I'd rather that you keep it more money in your pocket, do substantially better with your investments, and you give the money to the charities that you care about in a substantial form. Sure. But uh, I, I would I would certainly want to know what's going on in in those cases, and um, so we're going to do it on the show. We're going to continue to highlight this stuff when it comes out. Next topic, Keith. All right, what, what is next? What are we going to do next? Well, yeah, well, there's a lot of buzz about uh, your good friend Mark Zuckerberg. I know you guys are facebooking each other all the time. We're close, personal chatting. Friends. Yeah, you're tight. You're a tight unit. But, uh, yeah, so you got this Facebook thing coming out. And yeah. I think you had somebody ask or, you know, question you about getting some shares of this. Yeah, I've actually had a few people ask about it. And, um, hey, can we get, can we participate in the IPO? And that's, that's inherently pretty difficult to do. Um, you know, if you're on the retail brokerage side, usually those things are our institutional side, um, in terms of who gets offered the, the IPO shares. Now you could obviously participate in the, the market once it goes to, on the exchange and so forth. But, you're not going to be guaranteed the uh, IPO price for sure. The way that's allocated is a very interesting topic, and who gets the access to those, what you would call hot IPOs, is a very 
interesting system, but we don't have to get into all of that. I think what's important is for the average person out there uh, who would be buying it as it comes out on the market. So it goes, the initial public offering is done, the private placement, the price is set, what what the pre-IPO investors are going to get the the share price at. Uh And, And then it hits the public market and it trades freely, right? Right. And historically, um, there there's a gap between what the private placement price is and what it hits the public market. If you or I were just going to go to our local brokerage company or, or put our account in online at our brokerage account, when it comes public, we want to buy shares at the first available time we can buy the shares. Um, it's not you're you're really not sure exactly what that's going to be, right? Yeah, no idea really. But our our general idea would be. Hey, we want to get it because we think it's going to go up. And I think where a lot of people miss that or misunderstand is that a lot of that appreciation occurs between the private price and when it does go public. That if it came out at a particular share, a stock came out at 10 bucks in the private market, it may be 20 at the lowest possible price that you can buy it on the public market if it was a really hot and, and a huge demand for that particular stock. Now, research, and this is where it's, let's get to the question of, hey, should I be buying it? And we're talking about now buying it um, at market prices. If historically the guys who are buying it at the private are the ones selling it to you <laughs> once it's gone public, right? And if, if I was Mark Zuckerberg's personal financial advisor and uh, I'd have to interview him, I don't know, I'm not sure he's appropriate for us. But if he was, he can give us a call, but if, if he wants to, um, one of the things I would be doing is saying, you need to start selling as many of these shares as possible. I don't care what everyone feels about you know you being invested in the company. You'll be plenty invested. Mm-hmm. But he built his wealth at a very young age here on this company, and he could easily see it vanish. And I know he's not necessarily a guy maybe that was in it for that. You know, He was just love. I mean, I've seen the movie. Um, pretty good movie. Yeah, he's renting an apartment, I think, you know, up until recently. And that doesn't seem to be what floats his boat or whatever. But as an advisor, our job would be to say, hey, you know what? You should be selling this stuff, not loading up on it, you know, particularly right. since right. most of his wealth, right, is generated at the riskiest point in time of the company's history from zero to now. And so the, the phenomenal amount of wealth that he's been able to create on those shares has been because there was a lot of risk to get it to where it is. Um, now it's an up-and-running company, and now analysts, dozens if not hundreds of analysts are going to be watching it. Right. And once it gets beyond this IPO pricing system, it's going to be pretty fairly valued based on market knowledge of what's going on, right? Um, will you expect to see that, that return going forward that he's experienced? Well, that's unknown. But the studies have shown that, on average, stocks that are go IPO and then, in, in, if you recently uh, invested them, do do worse than the general market does. They don't add return; they actually do worse. So right. the best strategy would have been to get in them right pre-public market offering, sell them in the public market offering, and then go to a diversified portfolio. So, I remember Krispy Kreme donut. I don't know. If you I, love Krispy Kreme. I like Krispy Kreme. Oh, you're a, you're a donut kind of guy, and um, 
you know, I, I know you you like to indulge in a tasty treat on occasion. <laughs> but uh, you know, that was something that became very popular uh, uh, for a while, and I, I haven't looked at the stock recently. Um, but I know it after it IPO'd, it uh, had, had some run up and then did horrible. You know, I think it was sixty seventy percent decline in that thing. Yeah, I actually had some clients that I was working with. Uh, I was prior to working with Empirical. Um, who, who had the stock as a part of their undiversified stock portfolio. And, uh, you know, I'm not into making market predictions, but it had done really well for a period of time. And I said, suggest you got you to sell the stock or trim it down or do something because you right. got too much of it. And, you know, they, they didn't. And um, obviously they didn't, didn't do well with the stock afterwards. Well, and I think it's what I, what I, what, what I was saying here is that um, – I don't know how much money Mark Zuckerberg personally put into the company or at risk in the company, but I know he didn't have a lot, if, according to the movie here. <laughs> right, um, right. And so, you know, he built it largely on his intellectual capital and his labor that he put into it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you're investing in a passive capacity, right, when you're buying stock. And the real question is not whether or not, oh, Krispy Kreme here, by the way, it's at $7 and 68 cents um but if you look at it it, it was up to uh i don't know 50 or 60 i think i guess we got to take a break we'll uh we'll take a quick break and we'll finish our thoughts on this ipo discussion and get into our other topics we'll be right back the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. We were uh, talking about Facebook and the IPO and, and IPO investing in general and, and whether or not it's a good deal. And for the most part, Ethan, without uh, beating this, flogging this horse too long, um, the research has shown that they're not great deals for most of the investors that on average after the IPO that, I, that, that these companies do as well or worse than a general general market portfolio would do, but you certainly take a lot more risk. Yeah. So, no, no, no. Um, you know, I was I was mentioning Krispy Kreme. I kind of looked up and re uh, freshed my memory on how that all went down. It came out in two thousand, and uh, it's trading at now below the the uh, the, uh, the the initial price it came out. I think it was eleven fifty, and now it's trading at like seven something. And it did okay, you know, for a few years when it came out. It was pretty hot. But um, it just it ran into all kinds of issues, you know, and we won't have to go through all those. But there's a lot of risks in any company, regardless of how great they uh, are today. You know, there's no denying that Facebook's accomplished some amazing things in terms of turning some from nothing into something, and it's generating a lot of revenue and all that kind of stuff. But the value, it's not just whether the company is good or the product is good. It's the price you pay for the company, exactly right. That that sets the future expected return, mm-hmm. and what that company has to accomplish. And I remember when I was looking at the Krispy Kreme when we had a client back then, and I think it was 2003, sometime the same year that it kind of it had a peak point. I, I looked at it just for fun to say, hey, well, what do they have to actually do? And at that time, I think it was trading at 50 times, 40 or 50 times earnings, and. In order for it to maintain, if it gravitated, uh, you know, towards a, a reasonable PE ratio, it had to do some phenomenal, flawless growth. And and these companies, a lot of times, when they they miss the mark, and it's usually for reasons that are very unpredictable, could be a complete shift in in uh, behavior and culture, um, or it could be an unknown competitor that doesn't even exist. These time these things come out, mm-hmm. so you know. Facebook might have challenges that nobody can even identify today, but a year or two from now. And so it's more of an issue of, hey, for what the opportunity is going forward, is it worth putting a substantial amount at risk? Because it will become a part of our portfolios because we, in one way or another, own the entire global market. Right. We make some strategic weightings based on some certain criteria to try to manage risk or enhance return, right? Mm-hmm. But those are done within a very diversified and managed context. They're not willy-nilly, hey, I want to throw a, a large amount of money at one stock because, for no other reason, because I like Facebook or I like donuts. or It's not enough for us. Um, and we know what the track record is, and we have to go with that empirical data, that evidence of, hey, is this prudent, given, particularly given your individual situation? If you have $20 million bucks, well, what, what, it's not a big deal to throw 100000 you know, at something like that, if you just want to have fun, or just like it wouldn't be such a big deal to spend some money at a casino. 
But I don't know if you, you what you've got is about what you need to retire. Do you want to be taking gambles like that? Do you need to do that? So maybe you need to reframe things a little bit. What am I trying to accomplish? Right. What were my values when I was setting out an investment plan? If you don't have one, you should get one. Otherwise, you're always going to be getting tossed and, and thrown about when this stuff comes out, thinking that, hey, I don't want to miss out the whole greed and fear thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to miss out on this hot thing. I don't want to be kicking myself because I could have bought Facebook at you know, X amount per share. Now it's trading at double that. you got to get yourself out of that mindset. Was it? It's. It's. It, you can't be angry at yourself. It wasn't appropriate, right? You know. All right. Well, what's what, what's next, Ethan? Grab a hold of the wheel here. All right. Well, you know, I was talking with some clients here just for the day, uh, a couple different folks, and uh, you know, as you know, 2011 ended where you know the, the, the tilts that in some of we have in some of our portfolios, like the focus on the small and the uh, low price securities. Uh, didn't didn't work out as well in 2011 as they do uh, most of the time anyway, and um, it, sometimes it becomes a question. Hey, well, should we make some changes based on that? If the, the recent performance of, let's say, for example, emerging markets um, wasn't very good relative to things like the S and P, um, should we continue to hold that that exposure to the emerging markets? And of course, I I think that yeah, we should we should certainly do that. And the, the primary reason is because. Uh, it turns out that often enough, particularly in a diversified portfolio, yesterday's losers end up being tomorrow's winners and, and kind of vice versa. There's usually this, uh, there's always a couple of asset classes that do better than all the others. Um, and those those tend to reverse themselves different during different periods of time. And so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of look at, you know, the, the, the end of last year and uh, what's happened so far this year uh, with just a couple of different asset classes. And um so I, I called up the the website here and looked at some of the returns for some of the major asset groups across the across the allocations and the one that did primarily the worst in 2011 was uh, emerging markets. Emerging markets were down about you know, 20 to 25 percent depending on the type of emerging markets you had exposure to. And well, this year to date, um, as it's only the you know so first week of February in the new year, and some of these asset classes have really started to turn around and. Looking at emerging markets again in general, they're up about 14% for the year to date. You know, we're talking about you know a couple of like 35 days, and that is up um, 14% so far this year. And con- contrast that to things like, you know, what's the S&P done so far this year? And you know, it's up as well. It's done okay. It's up five and almost five and a half percent, but certainly isn't leading the group any longer as it did last year. Oh, I love the song. All right, go ahead. So, it's interesting to look at. And Run with it. Let's let's look at maybe take a look at another example here. So, what were the emerging markets up year to date? You said. Yeah, I'm looking at. Um, yeah, it's about about fourteen point fourteen point three percent to come back so far this year alone. They were down. Yeah, they I mean, were out. And last year, I know, especially for international, uh, they're that, fighting their way back towards the top. <laughs> that's right. The international, a lot of, a lot of those portfolios, like international small company, was down about fifteen percent. Um, international large cap down 12% for the year of 2011. Well, so far this year, it's a completely different story. It has turned around. You know, international stocks are about 11% so far just this year to date within about 30 days. So if you think very quick time. So if you're if you're abandoning ship constantly because hey why didn't why are we not getting out of these areas that have done bad? Right. You're setting yourself up. You're setting yourself up for. For disappointment. 
Exactly. Whether you admit it or are willing to acknowledge it or not, because it's easy to get out and never look back, right? And go, hey, how did my? I think where a lot of people get a, a skew is they make these decisions, but they don't go back and say, what was the what was the consequence of that? What's the outcome of that? Yeah. They just think they go on blindly, thinking that was the right thing to do. You know, get well. Hey, I, I had to get out of that stuff, but then they don't go back and go, wow, it's it was the year I got out. It wound up being the best. Right. What they're doing at the end of the next year is going. Well, I got to get out of my current losers. Right. And that that game continues. And then at the end of a 20-year period, they may have more money in their account than they started. But when we look at it and go, well, oh, geez, he could have done this diversified portfolio and made these rebalancing decisions and stuck with it, and, and it would be a phenomenal amount of wealth difference at the end. Right. What was the other items you were looking at? Well, it's it's pretty similar. You know, you have small cap stocks as well. The value components didn't do as well uh, in um, in 2011, down about 7%. They're up about 10% so far just year-to-date as well. So th- those types of things are doing doing pretty pretty well. That's why it's a, it's a problem in the short run to be making decisions as to what to own in the portfolio based on what's happened recently, in the recent past, the last six months or a year. That's uh, it's a recipe for, well, a good way to lose money, basically, over time. It's a recipe for losing money. Huh? It is. And, and long term, the, the difference in returns can be best explained by differences in risk. And those things always have held true. Yeah. And that, that's how we design portfolios here, which is it's, it's a lot different than um, you know, than, than the short-term results that you, you might look at. So what else you got, Ken? I just want to point that out. Well, you know, you know on that note, um, I think a lot of the questions we get from individuals, and you know, you watch... Uh, we were talking to Larry, and he was talking about like, the Jim Cramer show, right? Yeah. You have individuals calling in and, and asking about individual stocks that they're following. And clearly, they've put a lot of time and energy, right, into building the story because a lot of times, you know, the times I have tuned in to try to see what's going on there, um, I'm surprised that they have, they, you know, these, these are people who have other jobs and things going on in families in their lives. And they probably know more about a particular individual company than they do about their kids, you know, or, or other people that they care about. You know, they spend more time in a particular day trying to find out information about that company or investment. And I always think, you know, if if that's what you're going to do, you shouldn't be calling Jim Cramer. You should be going through the proper credentialing system to become a financial advisor or an investment person yourself. Why Why would you put all that time and energy into something that ultimately, as Larry has demonstrated, many other academics have demonstrated, and the evidence itself demonstrates, ultimately is losing game. Right. Charles Ellis, you know, winning the loser's game, mm-hmm. great book. But it, it's it's an exercise in futility. I, mean, I, I think I would rather find either focus on my job and be a Mark Zuckerberg. Hey, if you're going to be a billionaire. Do it because you create. You, you put time and energy into creating something that you can. That's value that you can give. To, you can put out as a service or a product, right? Um, few people have taken you know a very small amount of money and turned it into Zuckerberg dollars um, based on listening to Jim Cramer. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to hear from people. If they if they have if you're out there, I want to hear this. Yeah, if you if you went from nothing to a billionaire, zero. I mean, the, as far as I know, the kid had to borrow money here to get. I saw the movie the, too. The, yeah. <laughs> so 
I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying nobody's done it, but I'd like to hear from if you've done that, watching Jim Cramer's show or or somebody's newsletter or whatever, and you've taken a thousand dollars and turned it into a billion. You know, give me a give me a call, man. We'll put you on the show. We'll have you run the show. We'll I'll have you managing my money. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> if I, if I can see that that's a repeatable process that you've created. That's good stuff. You know, it's not enough that even a few of those, like the guy um, in you know that wrote the. There's a movie with Brad Pitt recently, uh, not after my life, Ethan, but it was about the baseball. Oh yeah, Moneyball. Moneyball, and uh, what's the author's name of that book? Um, he's written the uh, Liar, Liar's Poker and a few others. Right, I forget the moment. But uh, anywho, he um, there's there's the guy he wrote the that he wrote the book about the big. Uh, uh, and it was about the, the banking crisis here. And the one guy that uh, had projected that this, the mortgage stuff was going to go sideways, and he bought a bunch of uh, uh, and stuff or leverage futures, whatever, to do the contracts. Um, to he made a ton of money when it when it did blow. Right. Um, even that doesn't convince me that that's the best way to invest. That there is a guy that did that. Michael, Michael Lewis. Lewis is the guy's name. Thanks, Thanks uh, yeah, Lauren. So I think we got to take a breather. Uh, I think we got one more segment, so we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. We're here for our last segment today. Um, Ethan Broga alongside Ken Smith here. Again, if you'd like to reach us, feel free to give us a call. We'd love to have your question on the air. Uh, if you don't feel like talking much, but someone asks a question, you can also email us um, at empirical, I'm sorry, at contact at empiradio.com or uh, 866-472-5790. And uh, we were just finishing up a discussion um, last segment about the market here in the last six months, and then again, what's happened here recently. And 
Ken, what are we talking? What are we going to talk about next? Well, I think we've got a few minutes here. Um, I, I thought we could talk about maybe some other investment mistakes that we see. That if you're out there and you are trying to build a successful investment strategy, one of the mistakes. I, I mean, we covered a few last week with Larry, right? Overconfidence, recency, yeah, um, and uh, a couple other ones. But I, I think one of the mistakes is. That people that I see people getting into, particularly if um, they're engaging with an advisor, mm-hmm. you know, is they don't fully understand the time frame um, that they're investing. They're they don't know how to gauge success over the appropriate time frame, mm-hmm. and so they get frustrated if if uh, a short period of time goes by and they're not seeing phenomenal results or that they don't see long-term average results so we as advisors frequently i see this a lot we'll talk about someone says to you hey what what are the stock market return generally right we have a tendency to start it as a place to say well over the long term if we looked at our market it's generated somewhere around 10 percent a year right and that's some premium three to four percent premium over a bond portfolio or a fixed right. income portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. And I think where investors make mistakes are, A, they, they think that suddenly, in a year from now, Ethan, I hired you. You've bought stocks for me. If I don't get 10%, what am I, what am I paying you for? And this idea of, particularly when there's um, some compensation being paid for someone doing that work for you as an investor... A lot of times, the way that you scrutinize or evaluate your investment strategy is different than how when you were doing it, paying zero attention to it. And you may have been performing even you know, worse, right? So, But it wasn't a bother to you. It wasn't, wasn't on your mind. And I see where for a small percentage of people who wind up getting, you know, going out and finally getting some help, they get off track and they swap around from advisor to advisor, from approach to approach, um, trying to find what they're looking for, the holy grail, I guess, of investing. Somebody who will, in all market cases, um, hey, I'm paying you to to give me great returns. You know, I'm paying you to get me 10%. I mean, I think we even met someone like that. Hey, if you can't get me at least a minimum of 8 or 9% a year, then I don't think it's ever worth paying an advisor. Right. Like you. Well, hey... What do you mean by that? You mean, so next year if the market goes down 40% and we didn't get you a positive 8% return, we didn't do a good job? You know, well, that's not, you're starting with the wrong mindset and you're setting yourself up for failure, you know? And I've seen people where they they wind up getting frustrated and they go on to do other things like put it all in, in real estate, buy an apartment building or something else. Has a completely different direction, completely different set of responsibilities and risks, but somehow that became an apples to apples alternative <laughs> to appropriately understanding what to expect from your investment strategy, and appropriately under having the appropriate expectation of how long it's going to take to get there. And there are ways of of evaluating your advisor that. I'm not saying you have to wait 20 years to go, well, Jesus, my advisor doing a good job. There are ways of evaluating starting immediately. And part of that evaluation is, 
hey, do I trust this person? Is he communicating or she communicating clearly to me what the strategy is? How did we do in relation to the appropriate benchmarks? And those benchmarks should be considered in conjunction with time frames. Mm-hmm. If we are evaluating the first quarter of working together, or you are as an investor with your strategy, is it fair to say, hey, at the, at the end of the first quarter, <clears throat> that if I don't get a 4% return because at the end of the year I'm expecting a 12% return, then we, we i got to fire you. Right. Is that fair analysis? Well, we know there's a lot of variability in short-term returns in the market. Tons. <clears throat> and in particularly in short-term, because... What drives the market over very short periods is largely speculation. It's only over long periods of time that it's that fundamental part of investing, which is the earnings, the dividends that you bring in, at least when we're talking about stocks particularly, right? Right. That it's not very meaningful. You know, the, the more meaningful way to approach it is to say, hey, in the end of one year, historically speaking, for a portfolio that carries the risk that I have, with the combination of equities and bonds that I have, this is the this is the range of returns I would expect. If it was a 50-50 stock portfolio, for example, you might say, hey, well, geez, in any one year, it might be up 25%. could be down 15 or 20% typically, right? And then you know what we know. I mean, we have it on our portfolios. What, 75% of the time? 90%, 99% of the time, what are the ranges in there, right? Right. Um, if we're within some reasonable range of that portfolio, well, when we get out five years, are we within that? How did we do then relative to the appropriate benchmarks? You know, So arbitrarily picking a benchmark after you've invested, deciding, looking back and saying, well, I could have been in a CD. Why did I ever buy stocks? Well, you bought maybe you bought stocks because you have a 40-year time horizon. Right. You can't you can't abandon the strategy because in hindsight you can easily pick the perfect benchmark. Sure. You know, that that's but I see that. I do see that with people. Definitely a common mistake. Yeah. And it's a it's a mistake that will, will you will pay um, for over and over again. Again, whether you're willing to admit it because most of us aren't, um, or even acknowledge it or look at it, go back and say, geez, what did I really do? And I, I I fired my advisor. I abandoned. Maybe you read a book like one of Larry's books, and you and you implemented. You began to implement some of this stuff on your own because you felt like you could do it. But the first year didn't work out. You know, you said, "Hey, this isn't for me," and you're on to the next thing. Um, it's really not a. It's not a good way of doing it. And so you need to be clear about why you're doing it. Having a policy, understanding how what. A, what success is success is not that every year I get the highest historical rate of return that's ever been generated in any one single year. And if I don't get that, then I abandon the whole. All you're doing is setting yourself up and you should stay out of the market in, in, in the first place if that's what you're going to do. Right. Very easy, out of that? Very easy to lose money in that situation. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do think that is a, that is a mistake and, and um, you know, if you happen to make a few good decisions, or you happen to read someone who who uh, who predicted something or suggested something, and then it did work out, another mistake I see is taking a very small sample and then extrapolating that in and committing a lot of money to something based on 
in in otherwise um, in other situations you would think is ridiculous, right? You know, if there had been one medical procedure in which somebody did something that was um, potentially very deadly, um, would you would you go on that? Hey, I know this guy just had his heart cut out or whatever in this method, and, but they've only done it one time and it and it it's worked. So I'm going to go. You know, well, normally no, you want to see that. Can this be repeated? You know, under in tests and things like that, or drug that you're going to take maybe would be a better example. Right. Um, you want to know it works. So no doubt. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Ethan. Um, all thanks right. a lot for tuning in, and uh, hopefully today's show was useful and you got some insights or provoked some thought process. We'll be excited to speak with you again next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.